This is episode number eight and part one with Clyde Kusatsu. Coming up, it was not immediate. I mean, I had to work to be accepted. I had to work to be noticed. It was like one of the first guys to just look at me and says, "I'm welcomed and accepted, and you, you're a good actor." There's this guy coming up to me. He's going, "Hello, Clyde. You're very funny. The dailies are great." And it's George Harrison, looking at auditions and meetings not as warfare, but as an opportunity to demonstrate your skill set and what you can do, not about booking it. You know, I don't think that camera's going to be on me. It's going to be on him, because he had such a presence that he didn't need all that dialogue. Hey there! Thank you so much for checking out this podcast. Are you a subscriber yet? If not, click that subscribe button so that you do not miss anything ahead. And if you have an extra moment, go ahead and rate and review the show in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. That will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all your comments and thank you so much for doing that. Hello and welcome to the Working Actor's Journey. My name is Nathan Agin, and this podcast is in-depth interviews with working actors, people who have been doing this and getting paid for it professionally for thirty, forty, fifty plus years. It is about finding out what took them from A to B. How did they get started? How do they actually work on material? What challenged them? What did they face early on in their career? What do they still get challenged by? And what have they learned from a lifetime of acting? That's what the goal and the purpose of this show is. And so I'm glad you are here. Now, a quick word about me, your host. Again, my name is Nathan Agin. I'm an actor. I studied theater at the University of Southern California. Done a lot of theater, a little bit of TV and film. I'm also an entrepreneur. Work for myself online. I'm a bit of a goofball, which maybe you'll hear on this show. And I'm also a bit of a Shakespeare nerd. Love studying it, reading it, performing it whenever I get the opportunity. Just so you know, there's going to be about ten episodes for the first season of this podcast. As a listener of the Working Actors Journey podcast, Audible is offering you a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check them out. You can get a book that's an hour long or 15 hours long. Doesn't matter. Whatever you pick, it's free. To download your free audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com/audible. I do have a recommendation with a fantastic narrator. If you want to hear an actor who is exceptional at this stuff, check this book out: "Patient Zero" by Jonathan Mayberry, read by Ray Porter. Ray is one of the greats, and he's been named Audible's Narrator of the Year. Now, don't get thrown by the cover. It's not a typical zombie book, which is not my kind of genre. It was the reviews that sold me. I mean, people really enjoyed the story, but thought that Ray was the true hero of this one. I mean, they loved him so much. Some people wished they could give him more than five stars. And when I started listening to this book, I honestly had to remind myself several times that it's just him reading the books and not a dozen different actors. He's that good, and I've been lucky enough to work with Ray on stage, and I know what a great talent he is. So here's actually a clip from Patient Zero, read by Ray Porter. Chapter One: 
When you have to kill the same terrorist twice in one week, then there's either something wrong with your skills or something wrong with your world. And there's nothing wrong with my skills. They came for me at the beach, nice and slick, two in front, one big cover man behind in a three-point close while I was reaching for my car door. Nothing flashy, just three big guys in off-the-rack gray, all of them sweating in the Ocean City heat. The point man held up his hands in a no-problem gesture. It was a hot Saturday morning, and I was in swim trunks and a Hawaiian shirt with mermaids on it over a Tom Petty t-shirt, flip-flops and wayfarers. My piece was in a locked toolbox in the trunk with a trigger guard clamped on it. So you can choose this book, which clocks in at 14-plus hours and, for me, flew by, or choose any of the endless options that Audible offers. Could be a book, a newspaper, a magazine, or even a class. It is that easy. To download your free audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. Again, that's workingactorsjourney.com slash audible for your free audiobook and 30-day trial. Today on the show is part one of the marathon chat I had with Clyde Kusatsu. Clyde is an actor who, as of this month, February 2018, has been working in front of the camera for 45 years, and he is still booking roles. Now, heads up that this is a wide-ranging conversation across the years, and Clyde is a master storyteller with lots of great anecdotes and lessons learned. He can easily weave in history or politics. He's just quite a remarkable person, and I'm thrilled to have him on the show. I first connected with Clyde back in 2008 when I was helping out Ned Vaughn and Unite for Strength in the pre-merger days of SAG-AFTRA. Clyde and I actually lived near each other in L.A., and we've kept in touch a bit over the years. Clyde grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii, and attended Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois as a theater major. He has over 300 credits on IMDb, and just like Robert Pine in episode number one, Clyde has been on almost every iconic TV show from the 1970s to today, including both the original and newer versions of Hawaii Five-0. A quick look at his films include Midway, Turner and Hooch, In the Line of Fire, Paradise Road, American Pie, and Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo Bay. He's also done an extensive amount of animated and voiceover roles. Fun facts, according to IMDb, he has played a judge in at least 14 different shows and a medical doctor in at least 24 different movies and shows. He's been very involved with SAG-AFTRA leadership, and in 2013, he became the first elected president of the newly merged union's Los Angeles local. He currently sits as the National Vice President Los Angeles for SAG-AFTRA. In today's episode, we talk about growing up in post-World War II Hawaii, doing summer stock with Howard Keel, being a college-working actor, his time with the East-West Players Theatre Company in Los Angeles, how he approaches auditions, and working with the legendary actor Toshiro Mifune. 
As I mentioned, this is only part one of our conversation. There is more to come. So here we go with episode number eight. Please enjoy part one of my chat with Clyde Kusatsu. He's even got a show on on, on Vice Network. What would Diplo do? That uh, James Vanderbeek it plays Diplo. Oh wow! And that um, Bobby Lee plays him. <laughs> oh, cool! Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you know, it's like this business is a, a wonder. You know, if, yeah. You know, what's going to happen? You oh, never cool. know. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. Well, and to to jump off that, I mean, I I want to I want to mm-hmm. take it back to the beginning of your story because I'm sure there was a lot that you never expected was going to happen. But you grew up in Honolulu. And Correct. what kind of work did your parents do? Uh, see, okay, I was born in 48. That was just maybe, what, three years after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And then my mother was a elementary school teacher. She was a third grade teacher for her whole career. She was so beloved. Every year she got more presents from her, her, her pupils than uh, us. And then um, my father was an insurance salesman for Occidental Life Insurance Company, which was one of the first insurance companies that was formed by uh, a Japanese-American fella in, uh, in Hawaii at the time, and that was a breakthrough. It was founded by a guy named L.T. Kagawa, and so Occidental has always, at that time, was always on the forefront of recruiting before there was even a thing called diversity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my, my father was a uh, insurance salesman for his career. He was a veteran of uh, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. It was a Japanese-American uh, regiment that was formed following uh, after Pearl Harbor and where they fought in Europe. They became the most decorated military unit for its size in U.S. military history. They helped break prejudicial viewpoints on the Japanese because, you know, for many people, the Japanese were the enemy because of Pearl Harbor. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but you know, I, I tell you, I can still remember growing up in the fifties where that, that residual um, feeling and, and antipathy was still around. Oh, uh, sure. I mean, it, you know, it was uh, there growing up. Uh, uh, and at that time, when I was a kid, there was like only one TV station called KGMB, and they were the CBS affiliate. And then as licenses got bought, then NBC came in, and then ABC came in. So to program, they just filled the air morning to night with like movies from the Warner Brothers Film Library or Columbia Film Library, Universal Film Library. So in a sense, I was like, I guess I was a child in the media. I loved movies as a kid. It was maybe I didn't feel like I wanted to be part of the status quo. <laughs> There's got to be something like the song in West Side Story. There's got to be something better than this. Sure. And then, so in a way, I grew up watching Mickey and Judy make a show in the barn and hammer a stage together. And I thought, wow, that would be kind of nice to do. Watching the little rascals and how they had to put on—they put on a show—and and then of course the Mickey Mouse Club and all those kids were multi-talented, uh, dancing, perform, act, and everything. And it was like very 
attractive and sort of like uh, inspiring in a way. And I remember saying to my folks, could I uh, take tap dance lessons? And they kind of paused and looked at me kind of skew going, yeah, they sort of ignored it, you know. And so um, I went to uh, Ilani uh, Prep School, which was an Episcopal boys school at the time. It's now uh, co-ed, but at the time it was the rival to Punahou, which was uh, started by the missionaries in 1841. Our Ilani was started in 1863, I believe. Um, at the time, Barack Obama is a, is a graduate of Punahou. And uh, when I was at, at school at uh, Iolani, um the biggest alumni, famous alumni that went there was uh, Sun Yat-sen, who became the first president of the Chinese Republic after the overthrow of the uh, monarchy in China. Anyway, being there, I did band and I was in the choir. And then, uh, you know, the schools always had yearly musical and they were doing Guys and Dolls at the time. And because we were a boys school, the, the girls played from were from Punahou and from the sister school, uh, all girls school called St. Andrew's Priory. And uh, she said, would you like to be in the chorus? Because uh, someone dropped out. And it's sort of like a back end way because I didn't think I was too shy to audition. I didn't, th- you know, but all of a sudden being just allowed in and being in the chorus, it was fun. It was like a, a totally different world. It was exciting, you know, the whole thing. Everybody is bound together by theater and making music entertaining. And whereas I found myself being uncoordinated on on the athletic field, I, I, for some reason I was coordinated. I could do preliminary dance numbers and everything and found like at home to be on that stage. So from 14 to when I graduated from Iolani, I was in the drama program. Well, you know, did the drama shows and then also branched out and uh, wound up doing uh, University of Hawaii Drama Theater uh, lab productions were getting cast with a, a grad student who had a project called She Stoops to Conquer. And so further meeting other kids who love theater and everything. And um, she, her name was Sue Berger, and she eventually wound up marrying Barry Corbin, who's most famous for being the mayor on uh, Northern Exposure. Okay, Character sure. actor. Yeah, so and then, um, interestingly enough, flash forward years later, I'm back at my 50th high school reunion this last year, June, and uh, one of the headmasters, well, the headmaster's assistant uh, was my choir teacher, Helen No Lee's daughter. And I learned that she was still uh, alive and uh, thriving. And I just said, you know, I got to tell you, if it wasn't for your mom, she basically mentored me because she got me, she opened a door into this new world. And then my year of graduation in 66, she, that was the year that there was a fellow named Herb Rogers brought professional summer stock to Honolulu. And it, they were housed at what's, at that time was called the, um, I think it was the Honolulu Concert Hall, which is now the Neil Blaisdell Concert Hall. And it was like this large 2,500, 3,000-seat auditorium where um, beautiful theater. I wound up auditioning for The King and I uh, that was starring Anne Blythe. And I got a character actor named Joel Fabiani. And I wound up getting cast. And 
it was a taste and I wound up being invited to be like uh, an apprentice for the remaining shows. There were like maybe three more shows following the King and I with uh, like South Pacific that starred Howard Keel and Howard Keel and I became friends and I, I wound up going on stage for the last two performances uh, playing the part of Henry that opens up the, the, the show with the Ditemois with the kids. And then, of course, by then I had been uh, accepted to Northwestern University Theater Program uh, the fall of uh, 66. All right. So let me jump in there, actually, because there's there's a sure. number of things I want to ask about. I mean, well, first, uh, I mean, Howard Keel, he was a he was a big deal in terms of movie musicals. Yeah. You know, for uh, for a number of years. And so what was it like, you know, working with somebody at that who was at, at that level? People forget that at a certain point, even after those golden years of the musicals at MGM, his um, appeal was not that great at the business at the time. Um, it was almost as if uh, that era had gone by, but he was working by doing summer stock tours of different musicals. You know, he, was like, he hadn't lost his voice or anything, and he was a terrific president. So interestingly enough, um, it's TV that gave Howard um, a second shot at uh, prominence um, mm -hmm. with Dallas, you know. Okay, right. So you never know where it's, it's that kind of nature of our business. You never, if you stick in it long enough, there's always a comeback of some sort within one's journey. You have touchstones and touch points, and then there's a con interconnectedness. You don't know it at the time, of course, but you know, from, from a higher altitude and of course time, if you, if you're great, uh, lucky enough to have an extended tour of duty, so to speak, you wind up saying, wow, the people that come in, there is truly a six degrees of separation, some sort or another. You know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And I still look at it that when I take a pause, I'm going, I am doing and I'm being allowed to do what I've always dreamt of doing when I was a kid. And I still get to do it. This February will be my. 45th year in front of the camera and so it's like i was in toronto just a week ago doing a guest star on designated survivor the keith for sutherland show on abc and i was going how about that you know statistically a lot of people in my bracket they're kind of wound down a lot of times you know oh sure but um the next week uh it turned out that the christmas episode of ncis i guested on wound up being repeated. So I'm going, well, there you go. You never, you can never can plan these things. And it's like, all of a sudden it's there. And it's just one of those moments where you go, wow, how, how grateful it is to be still doing it and to have a, um, I think it's very important that you be guided by a sense, not of resentment, but of a, a positive energy force or the way you outlook on life that you accept that what was past is past and to embrace the future and you embrace evolution and change because it is going. And if you don't do it, then you're going to be left behind in the dust, you know, moaning the fact that, uh, gosh, we don't have uh, 78 vinyl anymore or 33 RPM, 33 and a third RPM vinyl. Or, I mean, there, there still exists, but those are for a very niche, niche audience, you know, or sort of like the difference between Betamax and, VHS. Right. And uh, it's, it's still happening, man. 
So one of the things I feel when when I am lucky enough to visit Hawaii is how removed it is from the rest of the U.S. I mean, kind of from the rest of the world, too, but certainly from the U.S. And and that's both can be really nice that you feel like you're just completely away from everything. But, you know, as a, as a kid there growing up, you know, you watch these movies and it seems like a good idea. But did you ever feel like it was so removed to, you know, get over to, you know, the mainland? And, and I mean, how did you decide on Northwestern? How did that kind of how did that come about? And did your parents... Was it were they supportive of all that? Uh, well, first of all, bef- uh, I didn't want to interrupt you, uh, but it is a subliminal thing because you just said, "How did you feel being removed from the U.S.?" We were part of the U.S. as a territory, and we are part of the U.S. as a state. But the state of mind is is if we're at that time like we were a foreign country, you know. Sure. So it, it is. So it's, for growing up, it was always one of those things where you had to correct people. Say, no, no, no. It's the mainland. We're separated from the mainland and not from the U.S. We are the U.S. Yeah, thank you. you know? <laughs> You're right. It's a, it is an important distinction. So um, at that time, the seasons used to be divided because at that time, Hawaii was still basically agrarian uh, economy, you know, sugarcane and pineapples. And there are sugarcane plantations, pineapple plantations almost on all the islands with canneries and processing plants, et cetera. And, um, but during those days, the seasons were also divided in the summertime. It was called the co-ed season because all these girls, uh, co-eds from the mainland would want to take summer classes at the university of Hawaii. Not really summer classes. You show up or you register, but most of the time you're surfing nightclubbing and, and spending time at the beach. And so there were, every summer there would be a whole influx of tourists. Then in the fall, it would be called the carriage trade because it was so expensive to come to Hawaii. Only those that were well off or could afford would be able to either take the uh, cruise line or or the plane over to the islands. I think what changed it all was, interestingly enough, Hawaii Five O back in '66. All of a sudden, it was, bam! One of the most popular programs on '66. I think. On CBS, I mean, it, it, I think it lasted 11 years, 11 seasons, but it just opened the world's eyes to Hawaii. Hmm. And the tourist industry all of a sudden just, boom, started to grow tremendously, and people wanted to go there. I mean, in fact, if you were a crew member on 5.0, you had the best opportunity to buy, buy condos at the time. A lot of those crew guys wound up buying maybe five or six condos. Wow. Um, you know, because it was, you know, it was all affordable. And it was at the same time all being developed by, like, there was a big uh, contractor and developer named Henry J. Kaiser who loved the color pink. So all his construction equipment, Caterpillar trailer, you know, uh, cranes and everything were painted pink. He really developed, like, Waikiki, where the, where the Hilton Hawaiian Village is now. That used to be the, the original Hawaiian Village with the lagoons and everything like that. That whole concept was Kaiser. And growing up in Hawaii, when I did in the 50s and the 60s, there was this, there were constant tensions going on. One, one of identity and being recognized. That's one as a, an American or as part of the United States. Two, the fact that we're there as one of the front lines of the, the national defense uh, in the national interest of security. And then, 
an economic uh, awareness of where you stand. And, you know, Hawaii was one of the first states where, because of the economics, most married couples worked to support the families for the decades. And they exist today, even before that whole idea uh, had permeated uh, society in, in the mainland, the continental United States, which a lot of people now, you know, it's, it's a matter of fact, right? Sure. Both husband and wife has a job and everything like that. And it, it still hasn't changed that, I mean, even though my mother was a school teacher and I went to public school from kindergarten to sixth grade, anything above sixth grade was a challenge in the academic uh, arena. So that's why I wound up going to Elani. Without the education, you, you can't better yourself. I, th- I, I might have been a weird kid. I think it was older before my time, in a way. Um, my, my thoughts weren't about kicking back and, hey, what's the latest style? And, it's, I, you know, uh, what people were listening to rock and roll music, I was listening to Big Ben and Glenn Miller, the Dorsey Brothers, Benny Goodman, and then jazz. So, and then Yelani, being in the band, we had a, that, that, at that time, we had this, uh, at that time, we had this groovy music teacher, John, a guy named John Swan, Canadian, who would play first trumpet in the symphony, and then on the weekends have uh, jammed with all the jazz uh, players that would come in for either the industrial shows or playing in the nightclubs. Nightclubs were really big in Hawaii at that time in the 60s. I mean, I can remember on the grounds of our uh, our school, Iolani, it was also a former uh, radio station, so it was all set up, but it was because it was a former radio station, it worked well for the band to be in there because we have kind of soundproof. And on the weekends, you'd have jam sessions with all these jazz, terrific jazz players from all over the country. And um, it was very exotic, right? And very kind of, uh, wow, hey, let's go over and listen to the music to hear that boom, and one, two, three. And then all of a sudden, this, this big band music was coming out. And also with other different characters where a couple of guys are smoking or have a bottle of 7-Up which is not really seven up. Right. <laughs> so it was like, wow, this is like exciting, right? It, it's like, it's so grown up in a way. We're so far out. I mean, the first concert I ever went to, I still remember was that was the Kingston trio. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then uh, Peter, Paul and Mary. Sure. And that was real big at the time in the 65, 66. It was very short. The, the, the folk music movement was very big. And then of course, then came, uh, Jan and Dean and the the Beach Boys and everything like that. And sort of like when the Beatles first poked in, it was like, who are those people? They're, no, that's not real music, you know. But of course, that changed real quickly. The cool thing about it is that years later, was it 1985, I wound up getting cast in a, a movie. But the exciting thing was it was a handmade film, which was George Harrison of the Beatles, his film company. We're in Hong Kong and on location on the beach, and there's this guy coming up to me. He's going, hello, Clyde, you're very funny. The dailies are great. And it's George Harrison. And I'm going, wow. Hey, thank you, George. But, you know, I grew up with your music. And, you know, and he was, oh, yeah, there was another time, wasn't it? Now we've got to move on with our lives, don't we? <laughs> and he was the most down-to-earth guy Oh, I'm playing the music. I'm writing the music. I hope Madonna sings it. She never did. And but he in his movies he always has like a small role. And in Shanghai Surprise, he was the guitar player in the hotel band uh, in a couple of the shots. And I thought, isn't this cool to be 
you wind up working with one of the legends of the music business that transcended the decades, you know, and shooting this film in, in Hong Kong and London. And in between that, I wind up getting cast in a terrific role that was written for me because I used to do a lot of um, imitations like, and John Wayne used to be a fun thing to do. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, partner, how are you? And on Magnum, in between shots, you're going, well, we've got to burn some film because the sun's a sitting and the Black Tower is not going to be too happy. <laughs> and one of the exec producers heard about that and created this role of a Japanese detective that spoke like John Wayne that drove Magnum nuts. It was created, and we were, I was able to do both the film and the episode, which ironically was also directed by Leo Penn, who was Sean Penn's father. So it's all these, like, I'm, I'm telling you, it's like my career has been filled with all these coincidences or synchronistic elements that it's, it's almost magical if I think about it. Well, so Clyde, I'm curious. So what did you take away from your time in Chicago? I mean, you, you, you studied theater at Northwestern, but, you know, Chicago is obviously mm -hmm. a great, um, you know, lively arts and cultural city. So w what did you kind of take from your time there? Well, you, you got to remember, though, it's the times, right? And so sure. from 66 to 70, Chicago was not the cultural center. I mean, there was, there was theater life there, but it's not the, the active cultural theater life that it developed that is there presently. I mean, the big thing in Chicago at the time was Second City and maybe the Goodman Theater. Um, and what was active theater were all these touring shows that played the big, big houses and everything. So there, that was before there was Steppenwolf and Looking Glass and all these other playhouses and ensembles. At Northwestern in 66, it still had the reputation with Elvina Krauss, who was the famed head of the school that was a touchstone for many successful people from Charlton Heston to Anne Margaret to Warren Beatty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was interesting. I had applied. Boston University had a good theater program. Northwestern. Denison University, where Hal Holbrook and uh, John Davidson went, who was a singer at that time. So the person that was going to conduct, oh, and, and Carnegie Tech, before it became Carnegie Mellon, had a great theater program. But at that time, it was uh, financially impossible to fly out to Pittsburgh, for example, to audition for their program. And that my parents weren't were so practical that that ain't happening. <laughs> and I, I wound up being accepted to Denison University Theater Department and Northwestern. Boston, on the other hand, there was another gal from Punahou and I were going to audition, but they assigned it to a local uh, professor in theater in Honolulu who we didn't much care for. So we both said, no, we respectfully declined. They weren't too happy about that. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I went, it, it was like uh, the trans, you must understand 1966 was that kind of a pivot point when it was still, when you went to college, there was that orientation week, you went through fraternity rush, and especially at like uh, prep school was, you got that list of what every gentleman should know when he goes to school this wardrobe one he must have a three-piece suit two a blazer gray slacks 
three a spring coat, you know, the whole list of um, three blue shirts, three white shirts, two red, uh, ties, regimental, etc. And then flash forward, you went to 1967, all of a sudden it was like combat jackets, jeans, and beards. So it was like complete flip of uh, a cultural thing. So it was that year was that that interesting pivot last year of quote the innocence of it all and so i was very excited to be part of that program and i thought i was hot shit because i'd spent that summer in quote quotation professional summer stock until uh, there was 125 kids in my introduction to theater class and you meet people who were like apprentices at totem pole theater in pennsylvania Algonquin Playhouse in Maine, um, Stowe, Vermont, Massachusetts, and you're going, these kids spent years interning the summers, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, you know, you kind of get the reality check. And another big reality check was, I, I can't, probably in the fall or early winter, the theater professor, I forget the name now, but cornered me and said, uh, you want to be an actor? Why? There's only Tiaz of the August Moon and the King and I. How could you possibly think about making a living? Wow. Uh, it crushed me. <laughs> I, I mean, I couldn't respond. I was like shocked. And just as your reaction is shocked. Yeah. It di I didn't say it to anybody. I didn't, I couldn't say it to anybody. I just in internalized it. Yeah, but to think of, of someone, you know, who is kind of in a supportive or supposed to be in a supportive position saying this to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, though, you know, things happen for a certain reason. And it's like, when you think about it, it's maybe, cha quote, challenges. And what do you do to deal with the challenge? Do you let the challenge defeat you? Do you, are you thus inspired then to go forward? And at the time, I didn't understand or know, have in my grasp the words perseverance, and the other word is resilience. But I knew that when I went back to Hawaii, it's sort of like, well, safe refuge. But then, of course, you have to have a summer job. And then the summer job I got through my uncle was in the night shift at Primo Beer, which was big at the time, at the brewery. And the night shift from like 4 in the afternoon to 12 midnight. And then sometimes the graveyard shift from 12 midnight to 8 where you had to clean it up. And here I am with all the blue-collar guys who are just doing this job. You know, it was a good-paying job at that time because it was like uh, 375 an hour when the cannery was playing, paying a dollar an hour. So it was a lot of money. But here's this kid reading Lord of the Rings and all these, hey, what you reading, kid? Uh, it's a thing called Lord of the Rings and uh, uh, The Hobbit. Uh, what's it about? Well, you know, these elves and little creatures called hobbits. And it was like, I think I don't want to be in this world. So I thought, I formulated, I guess, if I'm going to be considered an actor and want to do it, I'm going to have to work and be 10 times better than a white actor to get noticed. And so I approached the sophomore year going back, uh, auditioning for directing scenes, studio theater, children's theater. Of course, the main stage productions, which were two times a quarter and flash forward by the time the next three years I graduated from Northwestern, the theater department program, 
half the department cast me in the shows, UT, the University Productions. The other half didn't cast me, but would hold me as an exemplar of a working actor within the department. And during those three years, I'd spent uh, a summer stock time in Grand Lake, Colorado, the troupe of American college players who did four shows in repertory. The following year, I was a stage manager, performer in an inaugural summer sock company in Michigan City, Indiana, called the Canterbury Playhouse, which survived for several decades. And on 1970, the graduation year, I went to Aspen, Colorado, in the Theater Institute there at the time. And following that uh, work in Aspen, Colorado, uh, there was no going back to... I had also been accepted as a grad program at Northwestern, but I thought, do I really want to go back? And at that time, too, the U.S. government wanted me to be in the Army. And um, it took me a while, but I was able to get another deferment so I didn't have to go into the Army. But at any rate, I um, was back in Hawaii that, say, August or whatever. And here's the thing that was like a a splash of cold water in your face. Here you spend four years in college and you you have your folks going, so what do you want to do with your life? Why don't you get a job? And uh, why don't you go work at the Hilton Hawaiian Village as a bellboy? I went, okay. I went to interview. And at that time I had a mustache and the head guy looked at me and said, you got to shave it off. I said, what? And I went, uh, I don't think so. And then it just so happened that Someone I knew was starting this program of singing waiters. The concept was you're singing waiters and waitresses, and you would also entertain by doing songs from the, the gay 90s, the, the uh, 1890s to the 1900s in Aspen, Colorado, at the old Hotel Jerome. And so I said, I'm there. And at the same time, I had auditioned for a radio station in Honolulu. And just as I left... They, the call came in. Well, after I left, a week later, the call came in if I was interested in a job. It was too late. But at the same time, I was also doing a show um, at the University of Hawaii Theater Department that the head, Glenn Cannon, I had auditioned. He cast me. It was Paul Winfield playing Coriolanus, and Cyril Cusack was also in it, who was a famous British character actor. And after a couple of weeks, though, this, the Aspen thing came, so I had to uh, leave the show. But um, uh, so I wound up in Aspen, Colorado. And, of course, the U.S. Army was after me, and I wound up getting out of that uh, commitment and getting a permanent 1Y uh, status. And then when the show closed in Aspen, um, it was like the first one of those economic slumps in the tourism industry. I wound up in L.A. in 19, February of 1971 with the, the thinking was at that time, knowing New York at the time was known as the mean streets. I mean, it looked like midnight cowboy time when it was really harsh. And I said, well, if I'm going to starve, I might as well go someplace warmer where at least I can see the Pacific Ocean, which was California and L.A. And um, for the longest time, I went, oh, Everybody I knew from school went to New York, you know, did touring companies, got on Broadway, blah, blah, blah. But then what I didn't know is everybody went, oh, look at Clyde. He was so brave. He went out to Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting thing that things happen is that 
wound up in 71. Uh, there was a, a theater company called the Inner City Repertory Company, which was a multicultural, multiracial theater company that was set up to cast with diversity in mind, because at that time that wasn't happening. And um, I got my equity card there, being a replacement in a production of Street Scene. And there I met a, a, a woman named Sumi Haru, who was an actress, who said, have you heard of Mako? And, and I said, yeah, he was, he was uh, one of the first Asian Americans who was nominated for Best Supporting Role in, uh, for an Oscar in The Sand Pebbles. He was dynamic. And he started a theater called The East-West Players. So she invited me down. Mako wasn't there at the time. He was in Japan. Interestingly, because of his um, being nominated, he got a little cred. And he was one of those artists that would put the money that he made into the projects, passion projects that he had and developed. And he was in Japan. He gained the rights for a movie called The Silence, based on the book about Christian missionaries in Nagasaki around the 1600s or the 17th century which interestingly enough was done by Martin Scorsese lately. I, I think it kind of died. It didn't reach any kind of wide success, as did Mako's back in the 70s. But I said, mm, I visited the, the theater company. It was very small and tiny, and uh, it wasn't my cup of tea. I, I think I still didn't want to identify myself as, quote, Asian, and I felt like I'm going to be breaking the barriers myself. And, you know, when you have those kind of ideals, sometimes it takes a little hitting the brick wall and the dose of reality of saying, you know, sometimes perhaps it's maybe a um, kind of Don Quixote kind of movement or choice. Then in 72, there was a production of The Gold Watch, which was a play by a Japanese-American playwright, interestingly enough, from Chicago named Momoko Iko called The Gold Watch, and Mako was cast as a lead. This was at the Inner City Cultural Center. Nobu McCarthy, had, who had some ingenue success in films, was the mother. I was cast as uh, a supporting character. And um, that's when I first met Mako. And then Mako said later, he said, like, who is this kid that Jack Jackson, the artistic director, was touting, which was me. But we got along very well almost immediately because I was at that time maybe one of two Asian American actors in LA that had formal training of some sort myself with uh, uh, Northwestern and then Summerstock and then there was another another fellow from Hawaii interestingly named uh, Ernest Harada who was a graduate of Lambda and studied with Etienne de Croix in Paris who was Mar Marcel Marceau's um, teacher as well. In a way, we sort of became, we were pitted as like kind of rivals uh, at that time. But at East West Players, which was set up back in 65 by Asian actors who wanted to demonstrate to the industry that the Asian actor was more, uh, had more skill set than just playing laundrymen or coolies or, you know, peripheral roles that came along by doing, um, plays that were not necessarily written for Asians, like uh, Chekhov or uh, Ibsen. And so I would say that going to my time with East-West Players was an uh, important development arc for myself to rediscover my Asian roots uh, and my Japanese roots. 
And we did a lot of um, plays based uh, on J- Japanese shows or, or Kyogen, which is a form of no drama, the comedy element, and uh, learning about the culture. But also, it was a way of also con- continuing to develop by studying. One of my, the coaches I, I wound up studying with was a fellow named Rick Edelstein, who was a TV director, writer, who at the time was also a close advisor to Barbara Streisand and her coach and was very much um, method oriented motivation, utilizing your body and why you're doing this and being bold enough to break some barriers that you may interiorly feel hesitant to do it because it might be embarrassing, sort of break through that embarrassment wall. It was not immediate. I mean, I had to work to be accepted. I had to work to be noticed and all in all, it was good. It was just another challenge because instead of being the victim, it's sort of like, why me? It's like, no, even though I didn't have a really formal way of understanding, like, again, the perseverance and resilience aspect of it all, I was practicing that without an awareness of the word it's words themselves. So from that experience, it took me two years I'd go out on auditions and everything, and, and at that time, maybe there were 10 people that would always be at these auditions for Asian, uh, when it was called for Asian parts. And I wound up finally getting my first break being cast in uh, Kung Fu in an episode called Sun and Cloud Shadow in 1973. And it was one of those things where I made sure I did my preparation. And back in those days, you had an appointment set up a week in advance. And then you would have to get the, the sides uh, mailed to you. And then, but what taught me at the discipline was to go an hour early to auditions. Be nice to the secretary says, geez, can I take a look at that script? Quickly scan it. Where does your scene fit in? Where does your character fit in? And start making choices of how you want to approach the character. And not just take, uh, oh, this is what it is. And yeah, because many people would go, oh, this is just another guy who's a laundryman or whatever. No. Where does he fit in? Why was it written? And maybe you add your own story, your own backstory, your own motivations and everything. So the director I just auditioned for was a guy named Bob Butler. He was a very um, good TV director, film director, but he was very innovative. In fact, he, years later, wound up uh, doing the pilot for Hill Street Blues, which was very innovative in the sense of handheld cameras, quick shots, herky-jerky, uh, multiple camera angles, so that it was, it was always kind of some movement. It wasn't stage. It wasn't three setups and move on to the next setup. Um, there was an energy there. But he, he looked at me, and he had me do it again and again, and then he cast me. And uh, this role was... Integral role, but I, I didn't have a billing, but I, it was thrilling because the first day of location was at the Fox Ranch. Um, and to drive out there to the area, Fox Ranch is in the Santa Clarita Valley area. And today it's all developed with houses and everything. But at that time, it was the boonies. But the thrill of it all. And those days, you could wind up doing multiple roles in the arc of a series. And for Kung Fu, that lasted three years. I wound up being cast 
four projects, one two-hour one and three episodic. One was also my second episode for Kung Fu was called The Arrogant Dragon. And I remember going in there and auditioning for a, a lesser role, a co-star role. And the producer saw me and says, oh, you're the guy I've been talking about here. No, no, don't read this one. Read this one. And it was became my first guest star role. And that's when I was exposed to um, a director um, whose name escapes me now. I'm sad to say it's, I'm at that age range. But um, he would, uh, we had to connect. And he would say, as we're setting up, he said, no, 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 no. Um, Clyde, take a look through the camera lens. I'm going to have the uh, stand-in do the action I'm going to shoot. And it's through the back of the cabinet, so you can see. I'm, this is what I'm seeing, so this is what, don't worry about it. This is where the camera's going to be focused. And what it was, was I was beginning to have a uh, tutorial. on. Uh, it was almost like having a postgraduate course in um, filmmaking and film acting, which was terrific. And I wound up working with this director in another episode, a two-hour episode that he, we, we did uh, called Blood of, Blood of the Dragon, where I had two roles. One is a hundred-year-old Tibetan Lama, and the other as this um, mystic warrior, evil person out to get Kwai Chang Kane, and had this force and power that would come through my from a power energy source uh, by rolling my eyes up into my head. And like at one point in the audition, he says, can you do that? And I did. And he said, he just handed me the script. He says, I'll see you in a week. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it, he, we, I wound up working in, with him in, in other projects. Um, his father, he was a son of a, a famous uh, Hollywood director who directed, I believe, The King and I, uh, and was one of the staff directors at 20th Century Fox. But we just, you know, uh, got along very well. And I, I can't seem to, oh, Richard Lang, that's his name, Richard Lang. And Walter Lang was his dad. And Richard uh, would, there was a kind of, it was like one of the first guys to just look at me and says, I'm welcomed and accepted, and you, you're a good actor. And when, if he could find a place for me, he would find a place for me. Those were the days when uh, there was no kind of quota or uh, diversity movement to impel somebody to cast you. It was one of those slow days where the word went out to just find me good actors. So a casting director would have uh, me come out and there would be a black actor, a Hispanic actor, um, one of each, so to speak. And I would wind up getting cast. And that's how I wound up breaking through the barriers in a way and getting known as well as, as I believe. And those were the days too in, in LA when um, equity waiver 99 house seat uh, shows were very important because during those days, casting directors, writers, producers, directors did go to the little theaters to look for talent, did go upon recommendation from a casting director, etc. cetera, to, to go down to East West players and catch this guy. He's good. And um, that's how, it was almost like that whole 
feeling that you do the work, you keep trudging along that road of happy destiny, and you gain the experience, you gain, it's just practice, 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 right? How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. And I can, there's still another time I went to the offices of Kung Fu the Production on Warner Brothers, and as I walked in, the head casting person went, there you are, he jumped out of his seat, he said, follow me. He took me down the hall, opened the door, and said to another exec producer, this is the guy I'm talking about. He can talk. Because at that time, certain ethnic actors would be cast because of the look. And they'd fill in the dialogue later in ADR, dialogue replacement, and loop him completely. Um, but I was considered this, yeah, he's, he's trained. He can speak. <laughs> You know, and and it really did. That training really has always aided me because it's about making choices. And and at that time, certain like for example, vocal directors of TV uh, animated shows would say, "Hey, I heard this guy. Can you come in and read for this?" And like would start off as a small role, and you prove yourself, and then subsequently you get called in for another show and this and that. And by the way. You're playing uh, the tailor, and uh, you're going to do some walla, and you're going to do, can you do a couple of lines on this other character where you got a chance to not be the same, but create a different kind of character with the dialogue and everything. You know, it, it could be a non-Asian character as well. So there was a time where that's how I, my pathway in to doing voiceover work in animated, uh, in, in animated shows uh, started as well. I'd say to this day, I've worked almost every contract that SAG-AFTRA has, except for perhaps maybe a dance contract or uh, a singer's contract. Um, because even industrials, they're not called co-eds now. But industrials, I've done industrials where uh, you have to do how to install the PVCT 9.3 zip-zip and what the consequences are if you do not follow A, B, C, D, or E. And as boring as that, but it's all communicating, right? All those things, is many of the times, is just given the opportunity and jumping in and having the courage enough to go, okay, let me do it. If I make a mistake, I'll be not dinged, but I'll just be corrected. Because it's the hardest thing in our business, because what it is, the element is, you're always going to be rejected. We're in a system where it's built in. Rejection is part and parcel of the daily regimen. And you've got to, it takes a long time to finally set it aside going, you know, I'm going to prep to do this thing and I'll do the audition, but the guarantee is I'm not going to get that job. The guarantee is I get a chance to show my wares, to show what I can do. And I've learned through the years to have this analogy and I used it like in regards to say a, uh, a wide receiver like Jerry Rice for the 49ers who was tremendously talented, effective, had the hardest training regimen and which allowed him to play into his early 40s. That even the younger guys, the hot shots would work out with him and couldn't keep up with him because it's the willingness to keep your body, your instrument, your voice, your body movements, your mental acuity in shape so that, for example, if you're cut by a, a team, 
you have to try out to another team. Therefore, you have to study their playbook and get familiar with their run patterns, their routines. And you may be picked up, you may not. You may have to go try out for another team. Or they'll put you in the taxi squad or the development squad and then bring you up, sort of like in the Major League Baseball, in the farm league, you know, farm you out, triple A, double A, single A, all that kind of stuff, uh, to, to work out the kinks and then brought up to the big show. And then also, early on in my career, it was pointed out to me uh, when it came to actors and acting, it's like we're the biggest bullshit business in a way because many of us are undisciplined. If you want to be a concert violinist, a concert pianist, a ballet dancer, one, you have to know your instrument, the piano. You have to know the violin. You have to practice, practice, practice. You have to be able to sight read. You have to understand what are the pieces that you need to demonstrate. If you're a ballet dancer or you're a dancer, you have to keep working so that your skill set of being always in shape when presented with a routine to be able to do that. You know, when you look at uh, Chorus Lion, Dance Stand, Look 3, you just have to, you have to be able to follow the pattern, pick it up in less than a minute, so that you can then make it, you move so that you finally get to the final callback and perhaps get picked to be just in the chorus, for example. If you look at Chorus Lion, it's not about being the star, it's about just being into the chorus to get work. So I think um, what's missing today is that kind of, understanding and the discipline look there's a lot of opportunities right the young people you can be on youtube you can have your uh, subscribers on youtube instagram snapchat and sponsors may come to you would you put this can of coke in your your next video or whatever and that's fine god bless you're making a business you learn earning a living however you may just be relegated in that one little niche and if you want to break out you can't because you're only known for that. If you break out into another, you will lose your subscribers, that fear. It's, it hasn't changed. It's just gone on more high tech. But if you want to be that actor, that's, that's in a way why people will say, Jesus, why are all these actors from the UK or Australia or New Zealand, they seem to be coming in? And because in their system, I remember working on... Um, Shanghai Surprise, working with a lot of uh, Brit actors, and we had a conversation one time. He says, oh, dear boy, it's, it could be stage, it could be television, it could be a commercial, it could be a movie. But it's acting, dear boy. That's what we do. We act. And I went, oh, yeah. Because at that time, oh, no, I only do films, or I only do stage, or I only do Broadway. Oh, no, I don't do TV. And then, no, 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 I don't do commercials. No, I don't do voiceovers. So as a result, everything was so niche-oriented, right? But that now, today, in today's marketplace, you have to be able to do everything. And it is not a come down to do television. Because now, the most creative element in our business is TV shows. There are 500 TV shows being produced every year, the past couple of years. Whereas feature work has kind of shrunk down to basically um, franchises or uh, big tentpoles. And then... The interesting work is like independent films and everything, but that's challenged financially, remuneration-wise, to do those things. I mean, the star of Boys Don't Cry won the Academy Award down the road, but during that point, she couldn't get a prescription filled because she hadn't qualified for the health plan. 
because she didn't make enough money. That's how kind of weird and uh, kind of uh, surreal the business can be. It's not always the, the glitterati and paparazzi, so to speak, in the red carpet, you know. And uh, these days the challenges are such that um, now it's sort of like, hey, can you come in this afternoon? <laughs> what? Oh, well, here's the sides. Or can you self-shoot your scene? And when you self-shoot a scene, what you're doing is you're doing the work of the casting assistant. You're doing the work of the camera operator, putting at least rudimentary light, providing background so that it's, you know, uh, palatable. And on top of everything, you can't just look at your script. You have to at least have some semblance of understanding what the character is so that they can see you looking at the camera. It's a good training, by the way. No, no doubt to get that ease in front of the camera. You know, it's when you look at people doing their Facebook uh, chats and everything, it's like, seems seamless, but it'll help if you're a presenter, for example. But at the same time, when you're trying to concentrate on a, uh, on a role or character that you're going to do in less than 24 hours, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a challenge, you know. So, and also, it's sort of like all those elements, it's, it's almost like you have to learn how to be the juggler and I'll do everything kind of thing. But at the same time, what is the most important thing is to be able to, to book the job based on what? Your skill set. And a lot of times it's, um, it's a learning thing. It's like the last audition I did where it was self-shot, I finally just said, okay, there are services. So I'll say I'll pay the 40 bucks for the half hour, 20 minutes of shooting time, 10 minutes of editing, and then they'll upload everything and, and email it to your, your, uh, your representatives. But what was a good learning thing was that how am I possibly going to do this scene where all the characters just interspersed in with, you know, in five pages of dialogue? Well, you learn to edit, right? And then you get to the point where you give your edited copy of what you want to audition to the guy that's running the camera. And so basically you're, you're editing it down to, to like a different kind of performance, so almost like a monologue in a way. And you're reacting to the other things. And therefore, you do it that way it aids you by doing the edit work and everything to make the choices that you need to make so that when you're finally shooting that scene for the self quote air quotes self tape you've already directed it in your head and whether you get picked or not at least you know you were there uh showing your effort and getting a chance to um to practice your skill set and demonstrate your skill set. I think that's one of the most important um, things I've learned is uh, looking at um, auditions and meetings, not as warfare, but as an uh, opportunity to demonstrate your skill set and what you can do, not about booking it. I remember a few years ago, there was a, a pilot being cast for NBC called REM. Then it was really renamed Awake with uh, Jason's, Jason Isaacs. And it was written and created by showrunner who did a very good showrunner. I forget his name right now. But I, I did a lot of work in prepping for it. And so when, you, when I go into an audition, the white pages of the scene are like chock-a-block with red cross marks added, maybe incidental dialogue to toss in if I'm allowed to to have connectedness and everything. And by doing that process, you, you do that prep work. And I remember going into the, on the Fox lot, 20th century Fox lot. And there were a couple of younger actors, 
famous for certain big movie types. And one guy was reading People magazine and his, his sides were on the table in front of him, pristine, pristine white. And I went, yeah, stay out of that inventorying thing. Just concentrate on what you want to do. And it was a long wait. And so I'll go in and I did also part of the preliminary work to uh, Kyle Kalin. That's his name, the showrunner. You go, hey, that was one of the quickest, uh, highly reviewed shows, and it lasted two episodes, huh? And you go, yeah, and this and that. Because it's an opportunity for that first 20 seconds or whatever to connect to the creators. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But at least when you're able to have a, like a little uh, conversation, it's implicit that you've done some of your footwork and research. So anyway, we start to do the audition. And then Jason was re- Jason Isaacs is really into it. And at one point, he said, well, do it again. And a lot of times, the first pass, I'll do it basically slower. It's almost like um, editorializing anyway, mentally saying this is going to be the take. They can cut to it. And if there's interest on the part of the producer or director in that room, he'll say, hey, I like that, but let's do it again, but tighten it up. So one, you had a, a practice run or rehearsal at it, get you relaxed within that room. And also, never be afraid to just go in maybe second or third sentence. It is a screw up, not work through it, but go, oh, geez, I'm sorry. Ken, do you mind if we start over again? It says to them, he's confident enough to be able to recognize he made a mistake and he's going to be honest about that. And he's not going to try to fake it through. And they'll go nine times out of 10 to go, yeah, fine, sure, no problem. And so you get to do it again. And then. At one point, Jason said, hey, can we do the other scene? So anyway, it was a very, very collaborative, most enjoyable auditions I've had. And um, I left it, and the, the whole room was filled up. And then as I was walking in the parking lot, there was a Hispanic actor who came up laughing. He says, dude, you freaked out a lot of people. I said, what do you mean? You were in there for 25 minutes, man. People are going in for one minute, two minutes. You were there for 25 minutes. And I went, oh, really? And I felt really good about it. But I didn't book because what I learned at the time we were having that session, NBC was finalizing the deal with B.D. Wong to play that psychiatrist. So, you know, it, it was one of those things. And, and the point was, it was not a um, a fool's errand. It actually... To me, I took the value of it was it demonstrated the my intent and my regimen of doing it was validated because for that moment, I spent a long time with the creators and you have, that's been the opportunity you sell yourself. They have no control over what the network wants, but at least they were actively taking you into consideration. So and that's what that's what's exciting about even being in my 45th year in this business in front of the camera. That's what keeps it alive and fresh is you go in, not like, Oh God, we're going to have to do another 25. You know, that kind of a thing, that kind of attitude or, or the other attitude is, you know, Christ, they should know what I can do. Why, why do they see my reel? Why don't they do this and that? You know, it's like, no, sometimes what you do. And sometimes not everything you, you, you practice or anticipate is received. You're going to have some cold fish, and you go, thank you very much, and you move on. And, but 
keep the attitude down. Unless, say, you're like Shelley Winters, who was years ago, the, the famous story is she was called in to audition. And people went, they called in Shelley Winters? But she went. And she went into the room and was down a long table. And she gets to the end of the table and all the people on both sides. She's carrying a shopping bag and she puts the shopping bag down. And she reaches down and puts an Oscar from that bag there. Then from another bag, she takes and picks up another Oscar, puts it on on the table, looks at them and go, okay, are we done? <laughs> takes the Oscars and puts them back in and walks back out. That was the way she dealt with it. You know, it's like, uh, well, huh, at least she's Sally Winters and she could do that being a double Oscar winner. Right. So it's all these different stories. It's for us to find, individual find your own story, what works for you. And, not necessarily copy what somebody else did. Don't compare yourself to another person. Find your own true uh, person and be comfortable and be an accepting of what you bring to the table, which is a very, very challenging thing for many people to have. Um, and a lot of times what happens is you wind up on the pride boat and the pride boat usually sinks because it can't keep up. Uh, you got to be able to you know, sail that boat, whether it's going to be, no, actually, if you want to surf, here's my thing. You want to surf, you adapt to the boards that you're given. It could be the eight foot redwood board from the old times or the six foot gun or the three or four foot, uh, new with four, you know, rudders underneath, but you still get the surf. The wave is still there. It's whether you can adapt to the different boards that are being used at the time. You know, that's that's what I've learned. That's what I take about it. Clyde, I'm curious, you know, to jump back to when you mm -hmm. did Midway. You know, here you are working mm -hmm. with one of, you know, you do the scene with arguably one of the biggest stars in the world, uh, certainly in Japan, you know, a huge international star. And I, I don't want to mispronounce his name. So can you say the actor's name? Toshiro Mifune. Yes. So, so you're doing this scene with him and he's done, you know, Seven Samurai and Rashomon and just a big star in Japan. Um, mm -hmm. and what did you, what did you take away from, you know, either just observing how he worked or, you know, cause this was one of the first films in your career, if not the first, right? Actually, it was the second one, yeah. Okay, so it's very early in your film career, and you're probably still discovering your technique and all that. And here's this guy who's been, you know, just doing so much. What did you take away from that experience? It was an interesting experience all around because we shot that in June of 1975. At the same time, I wound up being cast by John Cordy in an NBC MOW called Farewell to Manzanar, which dealt with the Japanese-American intern camps that were put into the camps by the U.S. government. Um, and it was based on a true story um, by Jeannie Wakatsuki, Farewell to Manzanar, which uh, is a book that's taught in schools still to this day. And so on the one hand, I'm playing the enemy <laughs> that uh, uh, attacked Pearl Harbor and then attacked at Midway. And then a week later, I'm winding up doing the internment thing. But doing Midway was interesting because I was excited. I got to be, I was Commander Watanabe, uh, Admiral Yamamoto's aide, and Yamamoto was played by Mufuni Tishiro. 
and one of the you know arguably the the John quote the John Wayne of Japan Japanese film industry. Interestingly enough, he was an international star, but back in Japan because of their kind of uh, tight societal ways, she was he was considered like a sellout. <laughs> hmm. um, it's very interesting, but no doubt though he was a force and a presence. And the opening of the movie is myself reporting to the admiral that uh, Doodle's Raiders bombed Japan, all these cities in Japan. Uh, this is April of 1942. And I kept getting these rewrites sent to me. All of a sudden, I got more dialogue, dialogue that was originally written for him, to the point where he was left with maybe three lines. When? How? Ah, that's it. And I'm going... You know, I don't think that camera's going to be on me. It's going to be on him. Because he had such a presence that he didn't need all that dialogue. It, it was one of the first exposures to dealing with someone with that kind of charismatic presence that you don't see the work. You just see the character reacting, and it makes the scene work. I don't know how else to describe it. But it was such... A wonderful. He was such a giving person as well. As as we got on the set and met each other, he looked at my dress, my my wardrobe, immediately took off the ceremonial dagger that he brought with him for his wardrobe, and made sure he put it on myself because the aide should have that ceremony dagger with it, not necessarily the admiral himself. And he he took that kind of concern and and look in doing a historical presence situation. And then in the course of the scenes, a lot of the scenes were, I'm, I'm the one advising the staff, or this is the problem, here's this, this is what we have to do. And so he would just be looking and this and that. And interestingly enough, I did a lot of work in researching, trying to find mm, the character of Watanabe. And I found him only in two books, just that one sentence, and his aide was Commander Watanabe. Or another thing, and Watanabe. So I wound up saying, well, how do you fit the uniform? How do you live in this uniform? And I finally found a couple of books. One was called Samurai, based on the life of Saburo Sakai, who was uh, Japan's uh, foremost living ace with 81 kills uh, that survived the war. But he never attained an officership. He was just like a, a warrant officer. And therein lied the tale about the regimented caste or class system within the Japanese military structure. And the fact that the Navy had a different uh, ethos and culture than the Army. The Navy was more European and British-oriented and Dutch-oriented because of those who were the advisors that established the Navy versus the Army, which was more nationalistic and jingoistic and less disciplined, so to speak, less international, more nationalistic. And so there was also another book called Destroyer Captain by a, a Japanese uh, captain based on the life of commanding destroyers in, in the Second World War. But what was much more important was the first part where he described going to their version of Annapolis, which was uh, on an island called Itajima in uh, Hiroshima Bay Harbor, where their Naval Academy was. And the rigidness and the culture was more of a corporal kind of way of punishment, where the captain could punch or slap or hit or kick the lieutenant who could thus do it to the ensign, who could thus do it 
to the sergeant or to the chief petty officer, could then all the way down to the to the, the lowly seaman. It was that kind of uh, mentality, bullying and corporal punishment type of thing. And there's a reason why when you see these movies where there's highly disciplined, everybody's looking straight ahead as the, the person at the head of the table is speaking. Nobody has eye contact. They're just looking straight ahead to maintain that discipline. And interestingly enough, when we did those scenes where the big staff situations were, there were many actors who didn't even bother to do any kind of research about it. They just, you know, they got to put on the uniform and they, quote, acted. And I thought, okay, that's a choice, not my choice. I'd rather do the research, do the work so that I know on the set that I can feel comfortable as that character and don't have to be fake, quote, faking it, as a lot of these other guys are faking it. And then years later, I was doing a play at East West Players called Hokusai Sketchbooks about the life of the famous um, painter Hokusai in Japan, who from the age of 18 to 82. And in that play, I wind up aging, even stage makeup wise. And I was the understudy. And for the longest time at East West Players, I would always be the understudy. And a lot of times it would be like, why am I the understudy? Aren't I the trained person and this and that? And I was understudying Mako, who was playing Hokusai. But then Mako booked a uh, Chuck Norris film in San Francisco. So, and I had quit. I said, Mako, I can't do this anymore. Then I had a change of heart in 24 hours saying, what are you doing? Talk to him again and say, you'll, you'll be the understudy. He kind of laughed. He says, what changed your mind? He says, no, no, I just got to do this thing. Of course, then next day was like, um, you're going to be going on. I said, what? Yeah, I booked this movie, so you're going to be opening the show in two weeks. I'm like, holy shit. I'm going to have to, you know. And I put in a lot of effort and everything. And to the point was, by the time we opened, I was a fully formed character. And I was still developing the character. So that when he would come down from San Francisco and have his own rehearsals, he would listen to what we had developed in the course of production and rehearsal, but go on his own path. And unbeknownst to me, a casting director for the movie The Challenge, a John Frankenheimer picture, had seen, two weeks before the show was to close, had seen the production. And at that time, there was an actor that was cast in this production called The Challenge with Toshiro Mifune and Scott Glenn who had to drop out, so they needed someone to replace him. And so I got my agent call and says, how quickly can you get photos of, of the aging thing? So I quickly did the makeup and costume and had those photos done, and she sent them to Japan. And the next day after we closed, I was on a plane headed to Osaka and then Kyoto and for something like supposedly two weeks. And the two weeks turned out to be the whole length of the, the feature shoot of about three months in Japan working with Mifune and basically doing that same kind of role in the sense of the exposition. You know, what Sensei Yoshida said is this. And at that time, Mifune-san was very warm and welcoming. He remembered the whole thing. And he would always invite us to lunch with him as the American crew would go off and socialize, go off to find their own restaurant. And... At the time, he was seeing this woman who was his girlfriend and then who was pregnant. And 
her name was Mika. And then years later, five years ago, that child that was there is now a grown woman and a TV personality. And uh, I was asked to be interviewed by her for an uh, NHK uh, documentary show. So I brought a lot of the pictures of, of him and myself and this and that. And she was very thrilled. And then she said something very interesting. She said, you know, my father used to always talk about you and how much you did and how much you were willing to help him when we worked together. And I thought, really? Oh, wow. I mean, that's, that's kind of cool. Because in this movie, the, the challenge, we shot it in 1981 for CBS Films. He also, John, wanted as many of, of the veterans from the Seventh Samurai to also be involved. He got this uh, actor, Shimada, who was a leader in Seven Samurai, to play Mifune's father. Then the uh, actor, Inaba-san, who was this portly, jovial guy in the Seven Samurai, to be um, uh, a character. And then uh, Seiji Miyaguchi, who was a swordsman in the Seven Samurai, to be uh, another character as well. So it was very thrilling. And then this is how the interconnectedness is. Years later, in 1992, I'm in Australia and uh, Malaysia shooting a film called Paradise Road, where I replaced another actor that had fallen out. But in the course of the time, I'm playing a, a Japanese sergeant, a very mean guy, and then my technical director and dialogue coach, I was telling him this story about the challenge and working with Seiji Miyaguchi. And then he stops me and says, I am Seiji Miyaguchi's son, Tomo Miyaguchi. So, in the course of my career, I wind up working with the father. Years later, I wind up working with the son, who was a great, tremendous help in, in helping me craft and create this character that I played in Paradise Road, which was Bruce Beresford's picture that starred Glenn Close, and it was Kate Blanchett's first film, Juliana Margulies, Francis McDormand, a whole litany, a powerhouse of female um, actresses based on this uh, true story of women prisoners of war in uh, Sumatra by the Japanese who survived by forming a vocal orchestra. And my character was such that Bruce Beresford says, you know, Clyde, yours is going to be the one that he sees the eyes because he starts off as a brute and winds up being a sympathetic figure. And in real life, in the war crimes trial, his he was uh, vouched for in his defense by many of the women who were his prisoners. But that didn't matter. He was still uh, executed for war crimes, where the people that he followed orders from escaped that and wound up in government again. It's, it's that nature of it. But I know I digress from this whole thing about starting with, um, you get me going. It's <laughs> the in interconnectedness, though, of the stories is part of that journey I keep talking to you about. Yeah, it's just been phenomenal to hear about all the, the different twists and turns in your career. I, I don't know if I'm following it. It's not chronological, <laughs> and then I did this. Right. It's a, it's a winding, uh, circuitous, uh, back-and-forth route through Clyde's career. But it's, it's been really great. Uh, you're a great storyteller. Hey, guys. It's Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss anything. And if you can take a minute to rate and review this in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts, that will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all comments and thank you very much for doing that. 
Be sure to visit workingactorsjourney.com slash podcast for the show notes and any links from today's episode. You can also follow the show at WA Journey on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to connect and let us know what did you enjoy from the show. Don't forget to visit workingactorsjourney.com slash audible for your free audiobook and 30-day trial from Audible. Thank you again to today's guest. I really appreciate and value all the people that contribute their time to making this show possible. I'm Nathan Agan, and thanks for listening.